This is the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, when I was first an Episcopalian, people talked about it being the birthday of the church. So uh, you can think about it that way. For our patron, Luke, the Feast of Pentecost represents the transfer from the presence of the Holy Spirit of God and the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry to us, the people of God, who become both the fiduciaries of the Holy Spirit, the stewards, and the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. The Feast of Pentecost, the Festival of Pentecost in its origins, has something to do with the harvest, and it was uh, in, the, in the ancient Near East, Pentecost means 50th, the 50th day after the harvest and the ingathering. And ultimately, the church takes this over because it might have something to do with the harvest of souls as we understand them now coming to a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for them. We've just celebrated 50 days where the focus has been God's light, God's life, and God's love. And today, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in this way, or at least I intend to. The first two readings from the book of Acts, the famous story of the descent of the Holy Spirit, and from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8, where he speaks about, in so many words, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do we understand uh, what a person who's um, a Christian person, how they might act and behave. And then to say some things to you about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, we just celebrated baptism and we baptized Chloe Marie. And at her baptism, she received three virtues. The theological virtues are in the old language, the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love or faith, hope, and charity, uh, a, a badly maligned word these days. So faith, hope, and love is a better word because charity has a kind of lady bountiful aspect to it that we don't want to uh, focus on, right? But it's actually a very, very important uh, word, caritas, in, in Latin. So we celebrate this coming of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to ask the question, as I do often, how do you know whether you're making any spiritual progress or not? Or do you care whether you're making any spiritual progress? You know, I've said this to you before. Some people think, I don't know what the spiritual life is. I don't know whether I have a spiritual life. I'm not even sure whether I want to have a spiritual life. I don't know what it is. And I say which is the way I operate, when I get out of bed in the morning, I ask myself, what spirits am I in? That is the spiritual life. Whether you like it or not, you know, that's it. My, my grandparents used to say, you know, dear, I'm not in very good spirits today. Or they would say, you know, I'm in excellent spirits Let's do this, right? So sometimes we kind of uh, mystify spirituality in a way that is probably not the best thing. Why? Because the spiritual life has to do with our emotional and mental states 
and what condition they're in and how we understand that and what it might mean. So let's talk about the reading from the book of Acts. Uh, my wife Nancy got all the names right. <laughs> Very fine. Uh, but here's what it's here's a way to think about this. Um, in the upper room, when the Holy Spirit uh, descended on all those there, and they came out of the upper room and they were speaking, it says in the text that everybody understood them. So it doesn't mean that the uh, apostles and the disciples who received the Holy Spirit were given the gift of tongues, ecstatic utterance, or the great word for it, glossolalia. <laughs> Let's all say that. <laughs> glossolalia. 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 It's a great, it's a great word. Like Saint Eulalia. There's something about Lalia. I don't know what that is, you know? But that's it's unknown languages, and you know, it's there, and there's a whole lot of uh, Christian tradition that's very popular throughout the world now the, in the Pentecostal tradition, where the speak the use of glossolalia looms large. It might surprise you to know that as a religious tradition, its origins only date to about 1907. I mean, people <coughs> in the ancient Near East spoke in ecstatic tongues. Paul apparently did. And of all people, St. Ignatius Loyola, right? We would have never known this, of course, unless somebody had read his private diaries and discovered that in his own personal private prayer that he had this ecstatic speech. And it was clearly part of the practice of other religions in the ancient Near East at the time of the Christian movement beginning. But we're not talking about that in this passage. We're talking about universal understanding. We're talking about the unifying presence of God's spirit and everybody in whatever language was able to understand it. For Luke, our patron, who is the author of the book of Acts, Luke wrote Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. It's a two-volume set. And in the book of Acts, Luke, in this account, is, uh, wants to do this. He is saying that on the day of Pentecost, when that event occurred, it reversed the consequences of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Do you know that story? In Genesis, where people said to themselves, let's build a tower that is so high it's going to go right up to heaven. You know, they've dug up a lot of these, archaeologists have, in, the, in uh, Assyria and in uh, Iraq. They're called ziggurats. And they look like a kind of a tall tower. So they had them in the ancient Near East. Everybody gets up there, and God, this is another sermon, isn't it? Why, why would God want to do this? But he thought they were perhaps getting a little bit arrogant at their achievements. So he decided, I think as it says in the text, to confuse their speech. So that mean, meant all of a sudden that nobody could understand anybody, right? What Luke is saying here is the Feast of Pentecost brings in front of us the possibility that we can all understand one another or seek the unity that, that, that will produce 
that kind of universal understanding. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. And so the unifying effect of the Holy Spirit is a very important thing. And all of these disciples and apostles will now be able to go out and to seek that unity. They didn't all, all of a sudden, learn to speak all the languages. But at that moment, uh, the point was being made about God's unifying presence. The, the Holy Spirit in the doctrine of the Trinity is understood to be unitive being. God's unifying presence to the world and to each of us both internally and externally as a community of faith. So Luke is celebrating this transfer to the people of God from Jesus. We become the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit corporately and personally, and we become the fiduciaries, the stewards of the Holy Spirit of God moving forward. Paul and Romans is concerned about the issue of what it means to be a Christian. And I think Christian people have struggled with that since the beginning. There are a lot of Christian people uh, who believe that to be a good Christian means you must have right belief. I think a lot of the struggles in the Episcopal Church now that we're having about a lot of issues have to do with a, with a lot of people, a certain thread within Anglicanism that says, the starting point for all people is right belief. You need to check the boxes. And you need to understand what that is. There are others who say, I'm one of them, that belonging precedes believing. And so as we understand what that might mean, right belief may not necessarily be the necessary thing for being a good Christian. There are other people who believe that good Christian, a good Christian is somebody who uh, ha lives right and operates, uh, their conduct is, is uh, without reproach, you know. Usually in seminary, at least I was taught this, that means that they're not guilty of any of the warm sins. <laughs> or when we got down to the real business, the pelvic sin. <laughs> right? If you didn't, haven't done any of those things, you're in the clear. <laughs> See? That's what, that's what right being a good Christian has something to do with. Usually things like hardness of heart, insensitivity to the plight of those less fortunate, that doesn't usually come into the picture. But your personal conduct does. And there are those who believe that right worship is what it means to be a Christian, a good Christian. And Paul today says in so many words, none of those things are what it means to be a good Christian. A good Christian is somebody who's led by the Spirit. Now in those moments when I feel more un a little uncomfortable and sort of uh, floating, uh, when I hear that, I'm thinking maybe there needs to be a little bit more right belief in this. Right? You know, let the spirit move where it will. You know, I've had people tell me stuff about the spirit moving where it will for some of the absolutely most cockamamie things you can imagine. 
And yet here's the other thing. I've been open to this at times and seen the spirit of God uh, work in people and in circumstances that I thought the presence of God was not possible. The spirit of God could not be there. And it turned out to be. And I think Paul experienced, oddly enough, because he doesn't sound like, I don't, what, what kind of dinner company do you think he'd be? <laughs> I've often wondered uh, what Paul would, would be like, you know? Maybe not the best when he says in one of the, one of the letters, uh, you know, well, uh, would you please bring me the cloak and the part, I, everybody's gone, all I have is Luke, who's still with me. <laughs> you know, it's over. Paul is in some way uh, kind of hard to be around. But he says you have to be open to the Spirit, and I suspect in his work with Gentile Christians, he came to understand that, and that the internal processes he went through himself with his own uh, understanding of how God must be present uh, would have been very difficult for him, you know. He was a Pharisee, which is a, a pretty strict group of, of people within Judaism. Dermot McCullough, in this big book I've told you about called Christianity, the First 3,000 Years, he says that if, if you were going to uh, think about a party in Judaism that would be most close to Jesus' own outlook, it would be the Pharisees. Try that one on for size. We'll say something about that at another time. But Paul clearly had very fixed views on this and had to begin to see that the Spirit of God moves as it moves. And so that doesn't lock each of us down to seeing that we can come to believe, as it says in John's Gospel. We can do that. Uh, there's some information from a movement now within Christianity called the Emerging Church. And what it seems to deliver is that the people who have become part of the emerging church movement, people who didn't have a clue about Christianity in any form, uh, move at a certain rate in their in small communities. And the tendency, it seems to me, it, when they become more fully formed, or maybe connect now to other established faith traditions within Christianity, is that their belief becomes more orthodox and not less. So I think being uh, open to the movement of the spirit repays all of us in our life together because it leads people to uh, come to own and claim the deep things of Christian faith and belief in the tradition with a capital T in a way that uh, we hadn't thought as much about before. So you and I ought to be concerned as the spirit works in us, not with orthodoxy, right belief, but with orthopraxy, orthopraxis in Greek, which means right practice, and learning how to live a life with some intention, you know? And that's what the spirit appears to be leading many people to, and it's really what Paul is talking to about today in Romans. Now, how would you know if you're making any progress? Or mo more to the point, let's, let's say, what do you get with the presence of the Holy Spirit? What are the fruits of the Spirit? <coughs> Here's a list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So my suggestion is if you look at your life and you say to yourself, uh, I'm a little more able to do uh, some of those things than I used to be, I expect that you can say, I'm making some spiritual progress. Or I'm allowing God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen me to have some influence on my relational life, on my emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And by virtue of that, I'm becoming a better human being. All of these qualities appear to me to be the highest and best of our human traits. And when we can cultivate them, uh, we're able to have uh, great influence on people. We are able to um, teach people something about character. Years ago, Mother Morrison and I together took a class from an Episcopal priest <coughs> at the Graduate Theological Union named John Sanford. He's a famous Jungian therapist, in addition to being a, a uh, Episcopal priest. And um, I remember, the, it's not what I'm going to say here, but he, somebody raised their hand and said, uh, is reincarnation true? And he said, God, I hope it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I never ask any of you whether you believe in reincarnation because I really don't want to hear the answer. I have to be honest about it. <laughs> But he said in the course of his lecture, uh, character is living your life according to certain principles. Orthopraxy. So the, the only way you can do that is that somehow have some internal quickening about it, some kind of be in the spirit uh, moving. You know, it's from our, the Jewish tradition that we get the idea in Christianity any, of the spirit of God or the spirit of the people and the feeling uh, that comes with the idea of, of being possessed uh, with the spirit in a way that uh, would be like being at a meeting, even sometimes in a business meeting, you know, um, when things seem to be firing on all eights, you hear people say things like, Gee, there was a very good spirit at that meeting today. You know, there was some kind of a, of a presence there. And that's a, maybe a way to understand that. Father Thomas Keating uh, says that, you know, the thing is that the spirit is always present, yet always coming. This is an answer to the idea. I've read you the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, <coughs> self-control. And all of us know that there are times when we seem to be very centered and able to do these things fairly well, and then we sort of fall off, you know, or we, 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 we step backward from it. And Keating's response to that would be, because the spirit becomes present in a new way each time we move to a new level of spiritual awareness. So my point is that if you have learned to express these fruits of the Spirit uh, better, that stays with you. There's a cumulative process involved in this, and you're going to be able to access those things even if at a particular moment you weren't able to do it. 
I don't know about you, but on a daily basis, this stuff seems to uh, work in me minute by minute. Right? It, it doesn't, it isn't sort of like, like this, it's like, right? So, so that might be the way you, you, you'd think about it. Uh, give thanks for the presence of the Holy Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. Uh, remember that it's important to look at people, uh, places, and things as exhibiting the presence of the Spirit that you would have thought uh, couldn't or wouldn't, and to honor those things and to learn from them and to be willing by virtue of that to listen to maybe the practical wisdom that comes from those sources. And remember that uh, the guarantee of the presence of the Holy Spirit is that God is not a cutter and a runner, and God will always be with you, and God's Spirit will always be with you. Amen. Amen. Amen.